Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Kingsway Podcast from Pastor Sean. You are about to hear a message from a recent Sunday service. We consider it a privilege to be on a spiritual journey with you. So take a few moments with us and allow God to inspire you today. Amen. Okay, so today, what are we going to talk about? Well, we've been doing a series on holiness. And a lot of times this subject isn't a very exciting one to talk about in church. It's, it's quite um, difficult at times because people are, get all uncomfortable when you talk about holiness. It's a word in the name of our denomination. It's kind of an important word, holiness. And so we've done a whole series about it. And we started on this concept now of double-clicking of what it means to be sacred. And so to do that, I have an um, illustration I want to share with you. You see, many of you know that during the week I travel all over the country. I'm an executive coach and I go into Fortune 500 companies and I I coach them on strategies in their business. And this company I went to more recently was a traditional insurance company. It's been around for hundreds of years. And I walk through the, the foyer of it, and it's just like museum. And I'm seeing all of these insurance policies back from as far back as Abraham Lincoln signed one of these insurance policies. Yeah, I got to see it. It's in there. And, and, and the guy's walking me through. He says, look at that over there. Do you know what that is? It was an emblem like this, a signet like this, a placard like this. He says, you know what that is? I said, I have no clue what that is. Now, this isn't the exact insurance company I was working for, but it was something very similar to this. He said, way back then, they didn't have computers, cell phones. They didn't have any way to identify if you had an insurance policy or not. And they didn't do insurance back then the way they do now. Your house burns down, and then they give you the money, and you build your house back up. It didn't work that way. It would have been way too expensive. So what happened is, is basically, insurance company were in cahoots with the firefighters. And what they would do is... The insur- if you paid your insurance premium, if you paid your policy, which at that time was like $20, which was a lot of money back then, if you paid it, you got one of these emblems, you got one of these plaques, you put this plaque on your house, and then when the firefighters came, if your house was on fire, they would look for this plaque, and if they saw it, they'd put the fire out. If they didn't, they wouldn't. Volunteer, the fire departments would take criticism all the time. Why are you letting my house burn down? They see, it was this fee, effectively, that they took. And the firefighters, they relied on these fees, so they wanted more people to be insurance members. And because the firefighters' inactions at time, you know, homes and businesses would burn down. Now, they would come and they would sit idle by because they would watch where the fire would expand. And if you were in a house next door and you had one of these plaques, they would make sure your house was taken care of. So they would sit and watch. And of course, people would beg, beg when their house, oh, please put my fire out. Well, it's, it's, just, it's just too late. The really, really interesting part about this is if your house wasn't on fire, you were the next door neighbor and the firefighters were there, you had enough time to draw up a policy and put a plaque on before the fire hit your house. So people would do this back then. Many of us act in just the same way. There's punishment, you see, for not acting. There's punishment for misunderstanding. The punishment for misunderstanding, the sacred, is always loss. And once we start this process of loss, we start trying to make it up to God. We cause the fire, and then we expect God to put it out. It's what we were talking about during our worship service. You know, in our finances, we finally start promising to give when we have nothing left. 
When a car breaks down, we begin to repent of all the inappropriate places we took it to. When our children start rebelling, we wonder how the youth pastor at church can help fix it. When our marriages are in the storms, we seek the shelter of the church and its members, and we look for them to counsel our spouses. You see, again, these are all examples of not understanding the sacred, the sacred things of God. His church is sacred, and today we're going to focus on that element, his church. What is fire besides an illustration? What does it have to do with the church today? Well, two things. Church must be a priority before the fire starts to avoid the fire altogether. Number one. Number two, uh, you're not ready for number two yet. We got we to make sure we establish number one and then we will get in to number two. Let's open your Bibles, if you will. You can open it to Leviticus that's where I want to go to right now. Leviticus chapter 9. There's a couple verses in there that make this really clear. I'm going to go through a couple stories really quickly. You can follow along. I'm excited. I may talk fast. If I do, don't ask me to slow down. I got somewhere to go and I'm heading there. You just need to catch up. Amen? Amen. Again, we're on a series about holiness and the sacred. What's the difference? Does the Bible mention these two words? Yes. Does it use two different words? At times. Are they translated sometimes synonymously? At times, depending on what version you're looking at. But it is clear if you look in Scripture, there is a distinction. Something we have with God is holy. Our relationship is holy. God himself is holy. In fact, he calls us to be holy. And then there are things, items, places, objects, rituals, he calls Sacred things set apart for his purpose, his holy purpose are sacred. And so we've been evaluating in scripture. And I can't look, if I don't share one verse with you, look, Leviticus, I know it's hard to find, you don't read it. Go to the very beginning of your Bible, go right past Genesis, then Exodus, boom, there is Leviticus. It's right there. So, okay, as you're finding it, it's important because there's a verse in Leviticus that says this it says, You must be holy. Because I am holy. That's what God says. He says, you must be holy. So this is important, guys. It says in the New Testament, if you are not holy, you cannot see God. Look, this has got to be important, but do we preach about it? Do we understand it other than saying don't go sin? Is that holiness? Well, we're all sinners. That's the problem. Even back then, there was no Jesus Christ in Leviticus, at least one that they didn't know about. So how could they be holy? They knew they weren't. They were unrighteous. So Bill and I, these last couple weeks, have been sharing this concept of what it means to put on righteousness and what it means to be sacred. We've gone through all of that. And now we talk about the church, Leviticus chapter 9. So this is the story of the Jewish people. They were in slavery in Egypt under the Pharaoh. They escaped Egypt. They went to the Red Sea. It parted. They went through the Red Sea. They destroyed all of the Egyptians behind them. Now they're on the other side looking for the promised land, and they're wandering a little bit. They're at now Mount Sinai. And when they're at Mount Sinai, God tells them a number of things. One, he tells them how to build a tabernacle. It's just another fancy word for church. It was the church back then. Let's build a tabernacle a certain way. Very strict instructions. Let's have certain people do certain things in it a certain way. Mount Sinai, you remember the Ten Commandments? They come down. You remember all this, right? This is the scripture where we're at, right in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23. It says, then Moses and Aaron, they went into this tabernacle, and they blessed the people again, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. 
you know, this was just a tee-up verse. I was supposed to skip it, but I couldn't skip it. You know why? Because I'm looking at it, and the words were just jumping off the page. They were jumping off the page to me. Maybe they're not for you because you didn't study six hours on this verse, but I did, and here were the words. Look at them. They just jump off the page. Can you see them? You see, this is a picture of church. It was established way back then. This was probably the first church, the gathering in the tabernacle, and in that time when the people were free, look what happened. They blessed the people. They were in the presence of the glory of the Lord, and it was the whole community. This is the formula for church. It's a community of believers to come together to be blessed than to experience the glory of the Lord. I don't know why it's set up this way, but it is. You see, God has all authority. He is the shepherd and he gives the priests and the pastors the ability, the authority to bless those who come to the church. There's a special blessing by coming and gathering together as a whole community. That's what the Bible says. You can't do this at home. God has given husbands spiritual authority to bless their children and their wives. There are things you can do at home, but this right here, something is set aside. Something is sacred about the church and the meeting and gathering of his community. Let's continue. I said this last week. I brought it up to remind you. This is the New Testament. Jesus calls us his body. He says he takes care of his church like his own body, like his arms, his legs, his eyes, his back, his neck. If something hurts, he cares and he feeds for it. The body is sacred to Jesus Christ. And he, he cares for us because we are members of his body. You see, church is not about us coming in and getting what we need. It's about us being part of his body and doing and hearing and listening and being in his presence. He wants to take care of you. And he wants to do it in the context of his body, of his church. Do you treat your own body as something sacred? He does, but do you? I mean, I, I thought about this. We've been going through, and we can go back to the rest of the series to see all of our definitions of how we do this, but it's, it's pretty simple. Sacred is something that you respect, something you have reverence for, something that you um, protect, something that you're cautious around. Yeah, I'd say, generally speaking, we pretty much do that with our bodies. But do we set it apart for his purpose? There is the rub. Okay, the church, the church, is that sacred? The question still remains, what do you keep sacred? Again, I submit that we really don't understand what it even means. And we've been going over it now week after week after week, hopefully trying to garner an understanding of what it means to hold something sacred, to have reverence and respect, to protect, to care for, to be careful around it, to be cautious with its instructions. Here is another imagery of something that would help us. And now you can see how the sermon starts to come together. What about this? That is fire. That is fire. And I bet you most of you treat this almost like it's sacred. You respect it, I'm sure. You have a reverence for it, I'm sure. You protect it. You just don't let it get out of control at home on your stove or out in the fire pit or in the fireplace. You don't let the embers shoot out onto the carpet. If you do, you, you're careful you swipe them up. You see, I believe many people look at fire 
and can say, ooh, ooh, there's, there's something almost magical about it. Hey, if you stare into a fireplace, you're almost mesmerized, right? Most of us keep it sacred, but do we set it apart for God's purpose? In fact, is it holy? Do we think of it as holy? Probably not. We think of it as warmth. We think of it as entertainment, perhaps. But holy? I submit to you today that there is a intrinsic link between God's fire and his church, which he calls the tabernacle. He calls it his temple. And that when you bring his fire into his temple, you get something sacred. The Bible refers to it as his sacred temple. And today, I want to take a look at it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would prepare the soils of our hearts and minds. I pray, Father God, that you would allow the truth of your word to get deep down inside of our life, inside our soil, Father God, that it would take root and bear good fruit. Do what you need to do, Father God, to wake us up and hear your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Church says, God is good. And all the time. Okay, so you're awake. Let's keep going here. Sacred temples and fire. Okay, so that verse in Leviticus, you were in Leviticus chapter 9. You saw that verse. Just look at the very next verse. Look what it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. Verse 24. Fire blazed. You see, they went into the temple. They produced it exactly as they were instructed to. They brought the people in the way they were supposed to. They set up the sacrifice and the offering the way they were supposed to. Moses and Aaron came in. They prayed for it exactly as they were supposed to. The people began to gather in the community of the church and fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence. Consumed the offering. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell down on the ground. Can you imagine can you imagine? I hear Christians all the time. I can't see God. You know, I, I, if I, I'll see what I believe, that kind of thing. I believe what I see. Our God is not a God of words and mysticism. Our God is a God of power. And in the first church, he dropped very fire from heaven. What did it do? It purified that altar. It sanctified that altar. It made that altar, that tabernacle, holy. This wasn't the last time we saw it in Scripture. There's plenty who believe this wasn't the first time. There's verses back in Genesis where people were giving offerings that they suggest God brought fire down. But this is the first time in Scripture where it talks about fire blazing down from the heavens as his presence. We saw God's presence as a burning bush blazing as fire, right? Okay, let's keep looking. Remember this story? It's one of my favorite stories. Look at this one. Look, I don't even need to tell this story. Most of you know what this one is. This one's from 1 Kings. This is Elijah. You guys got to remember this story. Oh, man, this is, this is the competition of the gods, right? This is where Elijah built the altar. They smashed it up. They said, our God is better than your God. We're going to take you out and all your people. Elijah says, bring it on. He says, who is your God? Our God is Baal. Really, his name's Baal? He's something important to you? Set up your altar. Bring the biggest bull. Put it on the altar. You bring all of your priests. You bring all of your worshipers. You stand, don't you set it on fire. Don't you touch it. But you just put it on the altar. You sing your songs. You have your priests pray to your God. And let's see what happens. And then I will do the same. And I will show you the power of God. So they got together. 
They put their altar together. They put their bull on top of it. They got their priests. They got their worshipers. They start doing their thing. They're doing their dance. They're doing their whole thing. Nothing's happening. This scripture, the story here, I can preach this whole story. Just a, Elijah's over on the side. He hasn't done anything yet. He's laughing at him. Maybe your God can't hear you. Scream a little louder. Maybe, maybe your God's not impressed. Dance a little more. They start cutting themselves. They do all these rituals. They're screaming out with all they have. Church, I cannot let this moment go by. So many of us are serving so many other gods than that of Jesus Christ. And we cry out to our jobs. We cry out to our relationships. We cry out to our drugs. We cry out to our fame, our fortune, our finances. And we get no response. And you wonder why. Another sermon for another day. So then Elijah does exactly what God calls him to do. He repairs the altar, similar to this. He repairs it the exact way God instructed him. The 12 stones, 12 tribes of Judah, he instructed them just the way. He then got the fatted calf, just the way God talked about it, back here in, in Leviticus, puts it on top. He then, he then looks to those and he says, pour water all over it. Pour water all over it. They do. He says, that's not enough. Do it again. They do. He goes, it's not wet enough yet. Pour more. Dig a trench around it. Pour all the water you got in it. Many of you remember what happens next, but I want to point one verse out. I don't have time, so I'm going quick. It then says, at the appointed hour of prayer. See, there is, there is instructions in the Bible, and they are clear, and Elijah followed them to the T. And at that appointed hour, he said the appointed prayer, and when he was done the appointed prayer, he says, my God, my God, bring the fire down. And you know what happens, church? It looked just like this. It says, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and even the dust. It licked up all the water in the trench. Can you imagine you, you don't need a worship team to have a bunch of people come flock to see this. You don't need a big fancy church. You don't need a loud, boisterous pastor to come see this. The next verse says, and when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. You can respond. You can clap. You see, he is God. This happened, church. The fire literally came down from heaven. See, there was something in both of these scriptures about God's altar, about his tabernacle, about his presence, the fire. There's something very similar in both of them. They both show that they fell down on their face. You see, there is a response required. There is a response inevitable. When God's presence is in this place, there is a response that human beings will experience, will feel. In this case, they fell down on their face in reverence because he is God. Responding in church is okay. I encourage it. During our worship, if you want to clap, if you want to sing louder, if you want to run around, I'm okay with it. If you want to fall down on your face, I'm okay with it. If you want to clap during the sermon, if you want to say amen, I'm okay with it. Do you know why? This is not emotionalism. No. Emotionalism is about something, trying to brew up something that's not there. I know the presence of the Lord is here. And I expect when the presence of the Lord falls down from heaven, there will be a response. 
It's the whole gospel message. Jesus Christ came. He continued to do. You must respond to him. In every single situation, there was a response required all the way up until the end. A response required. God draws us and then he requires a response. Some of you are here today as a response of Jesus Christ calling you this morning. Congratulations. You're hearing him. You're feeling him. You're almost there. Do you want to experience the presence of the Lord like this? Don't you want to experience the presence of the Lord like this? So you need to go to the biggest church, don't you? Of course you do. Because clearly the biggest churches in America, they were built after the tabernacle in Numbers 4 and in Leviticus 9, right? Sure. Or you need to have a special worship team that's on the radio, or a special celebrity pastor who preaches the right words, the right time. They spend literally 40 hours just working on that 30 minutes. I'm happy to spend six to eight hours. Of course, it should be good, and I honor that. I'm, I'm ecstatic that we have celebrity pastors who can bring the word to us in ways we've never experienced it, that it can spread the gospel through the highways and byways, that we can compel them to come in. Amen. The question is, do you need that to experience God's presence? Let's look. See, in all of these situations, we see the holy presence of God requires sacred preparations. Sacred preparations. See, if you go back and look at Moses, when Moses entered into Mount Sinai, God was very clear of the preparations required. What the tabernacle should look like, the sizes of things, the way the court should be. Very, very specific. The way the sacrifice and the offering should be happening. The prayers. There was a great preparation. Elijah, the same way. He restored those 12 stones. He restored that altar. He prayed at the appointed time. He followed the preparations. When you follow the preparations, you enable yourself to have an opportunity to experience the holy. Let's talk about service for a second. I won't even talk about you. I'll talk about us. How do we prepare for God's presence. Sure, look, we are called to compel them to come in. So do we spend time thinking about all of you? Yes. We prepare, we put out coffee, and we put out the biggest donuts in Baltimore. Of course, right? I mean, you guys have been hearing about it. We plan all of our um, children's ministries, and we make sure everyone's fingerprinted, and, and we do all these things to prepare for you guys to come in. We think about the lights and the song choices. We pray about these things. But this is what I want you to hear. It's not about you. We do those things. We don't want to turn you away. But the presence of the Lord, this church, it's about him. And so we spend as much time that you don't see preparing ourselves, preparing this building for the presence of the Lord. In our prayer room, in our meetings, we spend time in prayer, sometimes in fasting, just praying for these services because we must prepare for the Lord. In, in my opinion, more than we prepare for the people because his place is sacred. I keep using this picture. I love this picture. It's a modern day representation of what the Solomon temple looked like, the tabernacle. Because you see, what happened after all of this, Moses and Joshua went to the promised land and all the judges, and we talked about King Saul and then King David, and then there was a tabernacle that they built a temple, a church, and it looked something like this, and it required great preparations. 
the priests must prepare themselves, anoint themselves, sanctify themselves. They must understand how to do the worship, how to do the incense, how to light the altar. They must do all these things, and they must do it exactly the right way, or they walk into the Holy of Holies, and they would be cast down. They would pass away instantly. David, the king of all the human kings at that time, appointed by God, he challenged and conquered all of his enemies. He recovered the Ark of the Covenant. He wanted the presence of God in Jerusalem. He misunderstood the sacred. You guys heard that sermon? And Uzzah touched the Ark. He died. Then the Ark was laid for three months in Obed's house. You saw that sermon. We talked about that sermon. David then goes back and he studies the sacred. He then prepares a way. He then gets into Jerusalem. He puts the Ark of the Covenant into a tent and then God speaks to him and says, we must build a temple. We must build the tabernacle. He goes through pages and pages and pages in Exodus and Leviticus. And then over in Kings and Second Kings and Chronicles, pages about how this temple needs to look like because it, it mirrored back what took place in Leviticus, yet it was going to be bigger and better. It says something like 120,000 tons of gold was used to build the temple that looked like this. And you'd think David would get to build it, but God says, man, I'm running out of time. This one's interesting, and I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to share it with you. David, a man after God's own heart, David, who conquered the Philistines. David, who conquered the Amorites. David, who brought the, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. David, who was going to provide all the resources to build the tabernacle. And yet God says, you are not a man of peace. You're a man of blood. You will not build my tabernacle. See, church, we can do a lot in our own flesh but unless we understand that God is the Prince of Peace that brings us peace that passes all understanding, that his ways are not our ways, the more that we establish what God is doing in our life, the more sacred he can be in our life. So Solomon, his son, was born to take on this task, to follow the instructions, to be a man of peace, and to build this tabernacle. And Solomon... I mean, the instructions in, what is it, First Kings, the instructions for the first, like, seven chapters. Go back and look at it. I mean, they measure every single table and the distance between things. I mean, it was, it was precise. Solomon did all these things. It took him years, the Bible says, years. And then, when it was all finished, he went and he dedicated the temple. He dedicated the tabernacle. And when he did this, he... He crafted this prayer to God. Just like we would dedicate our children, he dedicated this sacred place. And then he finished his prayer. And do you remember what happened? I want to share with you. I want to remind you what happened. It says, when Solomon finished praying, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The temple that they just built with all of this gold was quite literally on fire. Can, can you imagine? Hold on. The next verse. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord 
filling the temple. They physically saw the presence of God filling the temple. They fell on their face on the ground and worshiped and said, he is good. His faithful love endures forever. What do we say today? We say the same thing. We just say it in American version. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. It's just another example of how they said it back then. The, the presence of the Lord filled the temple with fire. Can you imagine watching fire come down from heaven? What the glory of the God that we serve looks like. I can imagine my heart pounding. I can imagine the heat on my face having to even pull away just a little bit. Not being able to catch my breath. The thrill of worshiping with all of the believers right in the middle of it. The temple was the place. The temple was the place where heaven and earth intersected. Where God himself left the heavens to come to earth. A glimpse of his glory was made visible to you and to me. Now this is interesting, you see, because the New Testament, I'm going to share with you in a moment here, describes something even better. The fact that I want to be a part of that, it underscores the fact that we do not appreciate the sacred in the New Testament. I would give anything to stand right there while the power of God was coming down on the first tabernacle in Jerusalem. The Bible says I get to do something even better. But before I share that with you, there are some instructions. Let's take a look. You know, we can jump to the New Testament now. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, we see this concept. Would you take a sledgehammer to the church? So if you were back then, 2 Chronicles, verse 7, the presence of the Lord just fell down. The, the temple's literally on fire, but not being consumed. The burnt offering is now effectively taken up. Everyone's falling on their face and crying and worshiping to God. At that moment, would you grab a sledgehammer and walk on in and be like, okay, we'll rearrange some things. Smack, smack, smack. It'd be unthinkable, wouldn't it? It'd be unthinkable. When the fire came down, God's glory filled the temple. Would you have considered striking that temple? Of course not. Then why are we so quick to gossip, slander leadership, and divide the church? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. You see, in 1 Corinthians, verse 17, chapter 3, it says these words. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. That's as clear as I can possibly state it. And I didn't, Paul did. Why is God so harsh about this? Paul explained that God's temple is sacred. Every time you speak evil about a member or an activity of the church, it's like taking a sledgehammer to the temple. Are you sure you want to keep doing that? Let's be careful with our words and our actions. We're dealing with something sacred. Let's stay on the right side of his protection. Maybe this is why Paul said in Titus 3.10, he says these words, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. We cannot be enablers of division. God hates this sin too much. His temple is too sacred. All right, let me, let me bring it back to modern times here. Again, Francis Chan, he, he led me onto this concept here. 
We live in a church culture today where we are used to evaluating and giving our opinion on everything. Literally, our economy and our culture is set up so that we can give our opinion. Whether it's pizza, an Uber drive, a movie we saw, or our friend's picture on social media, everything is set up for us to be able to critique and compare. So in the church, rather than marveling at the incredible mystery of God's sacred church, we critique the leadership, the music, the programs, and anything else we can think of. We point out flaws in the pastor's sermon as if he was a movie star in a Hollywood flick that didn't go so well, or as if it was a favorite team's play and they lost because of it. Could it be that we're taking a sledgehammer to the temple, beating down the church, the members, the leaders, the families, past or present, the previous pastors, the next generation approach? Beating these things down is dangerous. I said last week about playing church was one of the most dangerous things you could do. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. We saw that with some of the other examples that I gave. This is as dangerous. Therein lies a mystery, though. This verse doesn't end right here. It says, and you are that temple. It says, you are that temple. Go back one verse. If you're in your Bible, you can do it. Go back one verse and let me elaborate. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You see, every time I hear these verses, every time I hear the conversation about it, it's always about what are we putting in our bodies? Mm -hmm. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't put tattoos. I've heard all that. And we can pray through addiction. We can pray through idols. We can pray through that. But don't misunderstand what God is saying here. We misunderstand the sacred. You see, these are temples. It's not just about the bad that goes in. It's about what God wants to put in these temples. And it is fire from heaven. Do you see the God's spirit? Oh, I can't even contain myself. I'm going to try to as I get through this. And now I'm bringing the worship team up here. You and I are literally part of the temple itself. Somehow, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we became worthy of others, joining together to be a place of God. Peter describes us as living stones. So, so we are stones. You see, the foundation is the apostles and prophets, all the people we just talked about. They're the first stones, and we get to be laid on top of them. The Bible then says Jesus is our cornerstone, holding it all together. Somehow, we're joined together to form one house for one God. We're a block, each one of us, in a temple, a block in a temple that transcends time. And because the structure is a temple, that means God makes his home among us. Let that settle in. God makes his home inside you. I've heard all the sermons here, and I was trying to figure out how I can make this point so clear to you. And so, and so... I was reading the prayer, and I'm going to go over it again next week, but I was reading the prayer Solomon did about the temple here, and he says it better than I could or any pastor could ever say it. He effectively says, even the heavens, he 
and the highest part of heaven cannot contain God. He desires a home and he chooses you. He picks you. He makes his home among us, inside us. Church, you are a sacred temple. You have been set aside for God's divine purpose. If you are not experiencing it today, we need to talk about understanding sacred preparations, sacred reminders, sacred locations, all the things in Scripture that God has laid out for us. For instance, when we talk about preparation, do you prepare yourself for the Lord's presence like we see in the Bible here? What does your Sunday morning look like? For me, in the past, it was mostly about getting myself ready and getting myself in the church. Is that how we should prepare ourselves? What are we doing all week? What are we doing Friday? What are we doing Saturday night to prepare ourselves for the presence of God? This is why we also encourage so many of you to be a part of God's church today, to come into the church and be a part, do something in the church because you too will be preparing all week for your ministry, preparing to do the things you need to do in this place to compel them to come in, to allow God's spirit to fall. If his presence is inside of you, and I preached this message before, and I want to remind, remind you again, if his presence is inside of you, then he is to be worshipped. doesn't mean you are to be worshipped. It means he is to be worshipped. He is called many things. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. He's called counselor, prince of peace. He's called lots of things. But above all, he's called the great I am. Every time you use those words, I am, you are calling his presence in your life. If you follow up I am with anything derogatory, anything negative, you literally are cursing the name of God. I am stupid. I am not worthy. I am X. I am Y. You see, God's presence is inside of you. You need to say, I am victorious. I am healed. I am powerful. I am, Father God, who you say I am. You see, church, I need to get you a little more excited about what God is saying to me. Remember that the temple was a location where God chose to live on earth. The church is that temple where God chose to live. We are that temple. Consider this, Second Chronicles 7, where we saw the temple was dedicated. It was not the first time fire fell from heaven onto that temple, and it was not the last time. It also happened in Acts chapter 2, when the church itself, modern-day church, was born. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty wind, and it filled the house they were sitting in. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them. The disciples were united in praying with tongues of fire when it fell on them. They were the temple. The fire fell on them. And what happened next? You guys know what happened next. 
What happened is they began to sing and praise. They began to share their gifts and manifest the power of God in their life. They began to go out in the streets, the highways, the byways, preach sermons we've never heard, transform lives in ways we've never seen. They did greater works than even Jesus Christ on this planet. I tell you, church, today I tell you, church, the fire from heaven, the fire from heaven is ready to come down in your souls and in mine. We at Kingsway hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Sean. It was not by chance you listened to it. God is speaking to you. Visit kingswaycc.org to find the podcast from Pastor Sean. We pray today that this somehow inspired you to draw closer to God and to connect with His people, His purpose, and His power. God bless you.